Yeah, today's film fits kind of neatly in our timeline here. We're in that period be between world wars, and this is a movie I had seen before, but when I first watched it, I just watched it as a movie that was nominated for a lot of Oscars. I wasn't really thinking about the historical context or what China was like in 1926. Very similar to what we saw in Dr. Zhivago, the historical events are just very much background to it's kind of more about um, our characters here. And it's almost kind of neat how they throw in the historical events into the background here. Right. So not a super close tie into our our episode on Inherit the Wind, you know, which I usually try to do with the bonus episodes. But it is basically the same same time period. This is 1926 in China, just a year after the Scopes Monkey Trial. The opening text of the film I thought was worth reading to kind of throw us into the right time and place here uh, with American Navy men in China. And it says, ravaged from within by corrupt warlords, oppressed from without by the great world powers who had beaten China to her knees a century before. China, a country of factions trying to unite to become one nation through revolution. Which that's actually the name for that period in Chinese history is called the warlord era or the warlord period oh, okay. because of all the different factions and, and warlords that there's essentially no centralized government. And then uh, like we see in the movie, uh, Chiang Kai-shek comes in with his yes. his nationalist party and tries to unite you know, all of China under one one government. And we never actually see him on screen. He's just kind of all what they're talking about in the background and kind of the triggering point to tell our characters they need to get the heck out of there. Right, yeah. And I was a little confused, too, because, again, I, I like kind of doing this and going through everything step by step because I was like, wait a second, we haven't got to Last Emperor yet in our timeline. And so I was kind of researching that. It's like, oh, okay, because Last Emperor covers so much time. When we do get to Last Emperor, it's actually going to start us off back in 1908. So basically okay. the Imperial China and the Emperor – and we'll get to him as a, as a child, he was booted in like late 1900s, early 19-teens, and you get into this period of transition, like you're saying. So we're going basically, this is the about three decades in between Imperial China's collapse and Communist China's takeover, and we're kind of in the midst right. of that, and it's all these different factions, and... There's World War II thrown in there. This is a... This is kind of a, a rough, rough 50 years or so for China. Yes. And, and again, we're kind of going all over the place. But ultimately, the movie itself here isn't really important to our timeline because it's just kind of a fictionalized version of, well, let's talk about why these U.S. troops were here. You, you want to explain that Yangtze patrol? Yeah, it's basically a, a naval activity, a naval operation that took place from the 1850s all the way up until uh, 1949 when... Uh, China became the People's Republic of China, so all, almost 100 years of uh, continuous naval patrol in the Yangtze River to protect U.S. business interests, missionary sites like we see in the movie, and uh, it was also a kind of uh, a point of conflict for, uh, especially for the uh, the Nationalist Party, who wanted to be, you know, they wanted they wanted China to kind of be their own thing. They didn't want any uh, American interventionalism in in China. Right. And what we miss in the movie, because the movie starts after it. So, yes, I'm, I'm reading here now. It was the Xinhai Revolution, which I guess is so named because it was just the year of the Xinhai. It's so like how they named their years or 
Wikipedia here says Metal Pig. I'm not sure what that means. But I guess anyway, it was the year of the Metal Pig. So that's the name of the revolution. And in 1911, they did oust the... Oh, shoot. I didn't look up how to pronounce it. I think it's pronounced Ching. So yes, they were ousted. And there's kind of this then interstitial period where it is, like they said at the opening movie, all these these different warring factions. And uh, the other name of note that they don't mention in the movie is uh, Sun Yat-sen who I had heard of, and he kind of becomes kind of the de facto leader of this transition period where they kind of set up a provisional government. And again, it's it's almost uncanny, the parallels we see in all these revolutions going back, you know, through the, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution. They're just always so much in common. Basically, they have this similar source of the common people revolting. And we'll get into this more on Tuesday when we talk about Cabaret just how the different factions, who ended up winning, basically. So basically, yeah, that's probably more of a story for Cabaret, but just the idea of the common people are suffering, they want to revolt, and do they take that revolt to the extreme right, to the extreme left, and neither extreme is good when taken to the extreme. Some countries, seemingly more in the Western world, are established more uh, stable democracies and don't end up with uh, either extreme right or extreme left dictatorships. But yeah, so China right now is kind of in this interstitial period. And part of the reason that people are upset is because of how much the West has been taking advantage of China. And that's ultimately what it seems like led to the downfall of the Qing dynasty is their inability to kind of stand up for themselves against Western influence. But again, just like we saw with uh, with Russia, the higher up powers are basically okay with it because they're supported by the economic interests and they're doing fine. So what do they care if you know the the working right. people aren't aren't as well off? I think that the movie kind of does a good job of showing that with kind of how certain sections of the economy are built, you know, especially to cater to the sailors on the ship, like the brothel and the bars and stuff. Oh right. And it just you know it just kind of goes to show how that naval operation prolonged over such a long period of time kind of actually shapes the the culture of that whole area. And so the movie choosing 1926 is not an accident because that is where we kind of hit a big turning point in this intermediate period. So it looked like it, initially they had kind of been cooperating with the communists to kind of you know establish this new government. So in the movie, they don't actually tell us. They just tell us there's this massacre in Nanking, and they don't really go into it other than it's like, oh, crap, it's time for us to get out of here. They knew everything was you know kind of not great, and they wanted to stay as impartial as possible. And then once they have this, quote, massacre at Nanking, they're like, okay, uh, we got to go. And it looks like that's when Chiang Kai-shek not assassinated, but annihilated the communists. Is that basically the way you're reading it? So I had heard about this before. I I don't know if, was there even a communist party in China at this time? Or was it well, just like... Is, it says uh, Chang purged the communists inside the party, triggering a civil war, which he eventually lost in 1949. So then that must have been communists inside the nationalist party then. Oh, no, yeah, not like necessarily a whole other, okay, within his own party. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, not like he fought against them and destroyed them. Basically, yeah, he turned against the people who were with him if they were communists. So they were all kind of on right. the same side. But basically, it was the people with different views within his own side. He said, yeah, you're out of here. And, and that basically got rid of all of them. And, of course, the communist side is backed by a Soviet Union that's now a couple of decades old at this point. Or I guess just a decade old at this point. Yes. And so, yeah, basically, it's with the triggering of the Chinese Civil War, which, again, as I mentioned, Chiang Kai-shek ultimately loses... And I didn't get time to research this. So it kind of mentioned that 
you have basically the Republic of China that kind of takes power here with Chiang Kai-shek's group. And then when he loses yes. the civil war to the communists, they establish the People's Republic of China, but both kind of claim to be the true government. Yes, so that doesn't actually happen until like 1949. Correct. When the wars, when the civil war is over, yeah. Right. When when uh, Mao Zedong and his the Communist Party, when they basically win the civil war, and then the uh, nationalists led by Chiang Kai Shek, they go to Taiwan, which is why in the movie. The flag that they're flying is the flag of the Republic of China, which if you go to Taiwan today is the flag that they fly there as part of the Republic of China. But both the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China, which is what a lot of like when people think of China is the People's Republic of China, they both claim to be at least constitutionally the government of China. And so is that the same conflict that ties to today with Taiwan basically claiming that it's autonomous and China saying, no, you're part of us? Like that started with this? Yeah, right. It's such a complicated situation because they don't necessarily think that they're their own country, even though in practice they pretty much are. Um, you know, they have their own military, they issue their own passports, they elect their own president. But the government in Beijing the government of the People's Republic of China, they view Taiwan as, oh, no, that's part of China. Like, I think it was in the in the 90s when they actually came together and, and agreed on the one China policy that there oh, would only be okay. one China. Because up until that point, there was a lot of contention. And, uh, you know, there was uh, actually for a long time um, at the U.N., China was Taiwan. Oh, because well, basically the People's Republic wasn't welcome. And so the representative right. of all of China was the Taiwanese right. group basically saying, we're the Republic of China, going back to the same time. Oh, interesting. Right. So they, so the government in Taipei, they were the representatives of China at the UN until I think like the 70s. Oh, wow. And then there was a, uh, there was a, a resolution that passed to make the People's Republic of China the representatives China. of China yeah. at the UN. And, and interesting, yeah, interesting that it goes back to this time, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, almost almost 100 years ago. So, dealing with the movie itself. So, this is a movie that's kind of interesting. So, I, again, I first saw it probably 15 years ago because it was a Best Picture nominee from 1966 and nominated for eight Academy Awards. And I had never really heard of it. And it's pretty solid. Although, man, is it racist. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, though, oh man, uh, it was made... It was made in the 60s, about the 20s, so <laughs> that also makes it historically accurate. True. So even they could argue, no, we're not being racist. These characters were racist in the 20s. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it was uncomfortable at times when you're, these are supposed to be the heroes that are just slightly less racist <laughs> than the other people. It was actually kind of complicated, though. So the main character is played by Steve McQueen here, and he's an engineer who's you know in charge of the engines on the ship. And the interesting dynamic that they have on the ship is that basically the naval officers have subcontracted out all of their labor to the local Chinese who are more than happy to do it for little to no pay, while the naval officers basically just say, we're just supposed to be ready for war and we don't have to worry about the day-to-day -day stuff. Like, they almost get mad at Steve McQueen when he wants to shave himself. Yeah, basically every single crew member on the ship has a local Chinese equivalent up to and including the captain yes. who is like, you know, always standing on the bridge with, you know, the lead Chinese guy. Right. <laughs> and none of it's official. They just kind of did it. It's like two full crew crews, both in charge of everything. 
and the American troops just sit by while the Chinese crew actually runs everything. And Steve McQueen's like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> right, but but not not because he's like super proud or because he thinks it's a security thing. Like he just thinks that the Chinese aren't good or smart enough. Yeah, he's like he's like they're too stupid to run my engines. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> And what do they yeah. call them, like slope heads or something? I never even, I don't even remember hearing right, that term. I had never even heard of that slur before, but yeah, no, that's that's pretty prevalent throughout the movie. And the broken English, which, which I get that many of the Chinese people they encountered would not speak very good English, but then they're even talking to them back in their own broken English. So the the Americans are saying like, "You liking me?" I'm like, "Oh my gosh, this is so <laughs> uncomfortable." And, and there's, a, there's an interesting debate, too, between the American missionaries and there's kind of some British, uh, I don't know if they're naval officers for the British, but the bureaucrats and economic interested parties that are there, they're kind of having a debate about the Chinese. And they're both basically making racist arguments, basically, but making the different points. So like, you know, the missionaries are like, you know, we have hope for these people to be able to, you know, do something for themselves. And basically they won't be able to without us Christian missionaries here to help them. And then on the other side is the British paternalism basically saying like, nope, they're going to just, they can't do anything by themselves. This whole place would just fall apart if we weren't here to hold their society together. And both sides are just kind of so right. racist. Oh, anyway, it's, it's kind of gross, but the the name of the movie and i don't remember that i didn't remember this from the first time watching it so it's the sand pebbles which basically refers to the people on the ship because the ship is the san pablo so they nickname it the sand right. pebble so then the, uh, the people that work on it are the sand pebbles which i thought was kind of yes. neat but, but i think it's a fictional ship right or did you look it up was it a real ship yeah it's 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 not a real ship okay. it's just uh it's a fictional ship they made up for the show okay and the other term they use, and again, it's a, it's a term I'd heard that I know is rather derogatory, but I actually don't know the meaning. Uh, coolie? Yeah, I had never heard that uh, that term either. Okay, so I think I think this may be in Gandhi also. So yeah, it says it says here uh, an unskilled laborer in India, China, and some other Asian countries. So I think in Gandhi they talk about the coolies too, maybe, and it's basically just the, what the British kind of derogatorily call the locals who work for them and do labor for them is coolies. Oh, okay. and I, I don't know how offensive that is to even say that today, but it's definitely not a good thing. Anyway, yeah, they kind of don't like Steve McQueen's character because he's kind of challenging the status quo, which is definitely not what the U.S. Navy would be okay with, but they're just kind of so far away from everything else that they just kind of make it work. Right, to the point where even, like, the the captain is talking about, you know, he's going to, you know, ride him up and he's in all this trouble, but still keep working on the engine, though, because we don't have anybody else. <laughs> and, oh, so the second lead, did you recognize or are you familiar with uh, who played Frenchie? Uh, Richard Attenborough? Correct, yes. So from, from Jurassic Park, yeah. Yeah, the nice old man from Jurassic Park. Yes, who also was a director. He directed Gandhi that we're going to get to. Nice. So he, he did, he, and uh, Chaplin, which is a good one with Robert Downey Jr. And, and then A Bridge Too Far is kind of another uh, old war classic. So not a lot of credits, but so his only Academy Award nomination was for, uh, he won Best Director for Gandhi. There were a couple other faces that I uh yes you know I saw it I'm like I'm like who is that like I know I've seen them before James uh, Hong so like or whatever James Hong is is the brothel owner who I mean he's been in yes just a ton of stuff yeah like he's like 90 years old yeah weird old Asian guy in the corner in every movie that you recognize that guy right. <laughs> yeah and then gosh I don't remember what the oh 
uh, the character's name in the movie is Bronson, but he's played by uh, Joe Turkle, who is he's the bartender from The Shining. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And I was like, man, that guy's face looks familiar. And then it, it was it was on the uh, I was watching on Amazon and the the picture that they had for him on the side on the little uh, the little actor thing was the bartender in Shining. Huh. And so plot wise, it's just kind of Steve McQueen getting used to what's going on here in China on the ship. And they do kind of have the the bar slash brothel that they all all go hang out with. And and again, this is almost kind of. Oh, racist or sexist isn't quite the right word, although kind of. So there's the girl that Frenchie takes a liking to who's not actually one of the prostitutes, but they basically make a deal where for the right price she is, and she kind of owes James Hong's character $200. So if anybody pays that $200 off for her, they can have her and do whatever they want with her. So there's almost kind of like this disgusting contest among the men on the ship to be the first to get to sleep with her if they can raise the money. And then Frenchie, Richard Attenborough's character, is in theory noble because he doesn't want to sleep with her. He wants to marry her. But of course, he doesn't actually know her. He just thinks she's cute. Like, there's no reason to be smitten with her other than, I don't know. So yes, he's not just all after sex with her, but he also has no reason to have a relationship with her other than, hey, you're a girl, and I'm just kind of not as piggish as these other guys. Yeah. You look a lot better than any of the other prostitutes in here, so I'll marry you. And, like, there, there's so much of these weird little, like, what seem to be side stories, but then there's just, like, a hundred of them in this movie. This is one of those movies, like, it's three hours long, but it's not, like, one of those movies where, oh, it was three hours, but I hardly noticed. Like, no, you notice yeah. the length of this movie, like, it kind of goes on and on and on. It's more of a five-episode TV show because there is no overall exactly. arching plot. It is just a bunch of these little vignettes as it goes through with these running themes of him trying to get the girl and, you know, them having issues with the coolies and the engine. And then then kind of then at the end, it comes around to what we were talking about at the beginning with, oh, the kind of background Chinese stuff is getting heated. We need to get out of here. And then what we haven't mentioned yet, the side plot with... Uh, Candace Bergen, who was famous for playing Murphy Brown in the 90s, is a young teacher at the missionary complex or whatever. And she, without knowing anything other than he's a handsome young man, is like immediately in love with Steve McQueen, even though he's even kind of a jerk to her. And she just kind of keeps looking at him like, he'll like me eventually. And... And super racist. Like he tells her, oh, you're going to be a teacher. Yeah, good luck. That's not going to happen because uh, I don't know if you know this, but Chinese people are too stupid to learn anything. Yes, he basically basically says that conversation that he has with her. Right. And she's just looking at him like, oh, he's so pretty. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So and then she doesn't have a major role in it at all. But she comes back at the end when, again, we kind of mentioned where they're, they're here in China in the first place, protecting economic interests and Christian missionaries. So once they kind of feel like the current government situation is becoming completely unstable, the first thing they're worried about is that these missionaries might just get killed just for being American and being there. And it's kind of a Chinese purge is about to happen for anybody who's not Chinese or on the right side of the ruling party. So there's kind of the big showdown at the end where 
they kind of go to rescue the missionaries. Of course, then the main pastor, priest there, whatever, doesn't want to leave and does end up getting killed by the Chinese. And they kind of, this, this whole thing's weird. You get the captain who kind of has a death, death wish and almost kills himself when there's a near mutiny over the crew's refusal to be able to turn over Steve McQueen's character to the Chinese because they frame him for a murder. Actually, very similar to Zulu, or what happened off the screen in Zulu, was the British picking a fight against the Zulu. The Chinese are actually trying to pick a fight with the Americans, and I'm not sure exactly why, other than it gives them permission to kill other Americans, or are they trying to bait Russia's help into the situation? Why exactly were they trying to bait a war there with the Americans? I don't think, well, at least nothing that I saw showed that that was historically accurate. Oh, okay, but okay. I think in, yeah, I think in the movie, they were trying to basically make their conflict a bigger deal by baiting America into uh, picking one side or the other kind of thing. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. If, yeah, if America is in it, then they're going to inevitably be in one side or the other. It, it basically, so to advance their cause, we got to get right. America well, involved. Because they, they, they already didn't like that America was there. And so that's why you see like the provocation, like where they when they, they string up Pohan. And they're oh, basically right. trying to bait the Americans into firing on them so that then they can use that as see, look at how bad the Americans are. They're, you know, they're, they're killing all of us. Let's fight this war wow. against them. So they're basically willing to sacrifice themselves to be martyrs for a, a cause there. Right. So, yeah. The, yeah. So the ending's kind of awkward, I thought. Like the whole idea of like them kind of just distracting and then like, okay, the captain's like, okay, I'm going to stay here and do the kind of for whom the bell tolls ending and you guys kind of run off and I'll hold them off. But then like, the moment the captain like gets killed immediately, Stephen Queen runs back in. Okay, so you just waste all the time. He sacrificed his whole life for you, and then he kind of does the same thing. And the idea is, I guess, that they do get away, and Stephen Queen's character—spoiler alert for a 55-year-old movie—but or whatever doesn't make it. And it and that that was something else. It didn't make a ton of sense to me. So like they get their little you know landing party and they go to the missionary place like hey we're gonna save these missionaries and then steve mcqueen like for like all of 30 seconds pulls this 180 like oh actually captain i'm gonna stay here oh right missionary almost like a little mini mutiny you go back to it like yeah you beat it i'm staying here we're all just gonna hang out with the missionaries and then like literally one or two minutes later they're like oh wait actually no bad idea we're gonna get out of here you know, Captain, thanks for sacrificing yourself. Right. He's basically saying, like, I'm going to be a deserter. Ah, nah, whatever. <laughs> like, it's just, yeah, it's, it is kind of bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched it. I was like, I don't know if I missed something here. So then I, like, I like went back a couple oh, minutes really? and I was like, nope, I didn't miss no, anything. You didn't. That yeah. just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it, and again, but again, it kind of goes to the whole structure of the whole ship. It's like, how mutinous or deserting are you being when they're not actually running the ship according to any proper U.S. protocols? And yeah, again, again, it's it's entertaining. I get the you know kind of 1960s version of of Oscar uh, nominations. It didn't win anything, but it was was nominated for eight. Richard Attenborough won a Golden Globe for okay. Best Supporting Actor. So you know, not for nothing. And, and again, I just think it's one of those kind of solid war epics from the 60s that is not a household name today like a lot of others from that time period. It's a 94% on, on Rotten Tomatoes. And that's really about all we kind of need to do on this bonus episode here. And as far as like a little more, we'll get a little more detail into the Chinese history of this that we kind of touched on a little bit of when we do get to The Last Emperor because it'll kind of reset us back to 1908 and we'll kind of cover that whole several decades 
period again as we get into that film and look at it kind of from the emperor's side because uh that that's a movie that kind of really uh left an impression on me when i when i watched it so yeah thanks for listening and uh again we'll see you next tuesday